Welcome to Sexcavation, hosted by me, Bridget Woods. We're here to take you on a deep dive into sexuality and gender research. Sexcavation helps break down those big concepts you've probably heard before. Ideas like heterosexism, polyamory, toxic masculinity, with the help of some pretty cool psychologists, academics, and activists. Our mission is to make all of this complicated research on sex and gender accessible to everyone because, let's be real, it affects all of us. I am joined today by Dr. Allison Norris to speak about what reproductive care, access, and justice can look like. Dr. Norris is an associate professor in the Ohio State University College of Public Health with a joint appointment in the Ohio State University College of Medicine. Dr. Norris earned an MD and a PhD from the Yale Schools of Medicine and Public Health, and she was a Charlotte Ellertson postdoctoral fellow at Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. Focusing on sensitive or stigmatized subjects, Dr. Norris employs multidisciplinary methods to investigate access to contraception and abortion, prevention of unwanted pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases, and knowledge and stigma about sexual reproductive health topics. Dr. Norris shared with us findings from the collected scholarship of more than 50 faculty, students, and staff at universities across Ohio who work together as part of the Ohio Policy Evaluation Network called OPEN. Stay tuned after the interview for some more information about OPEN. Let's dive in. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Allison Norris from Ohio State University. We're going to be talking today about a lot of different factors relating to reproductive care, reproductive access, and justice, but I'm so happy that you're joining us today, and I'm really excited. Bridget, thanks so much. I'm delighted. So you are one of the leaders of OPEN, along with your colleague, Dr. Danielle Bissett, and a team of graduate students and clinicians. And OPEN stands for the Ohio Policy Evaluation Network. So could you tell us a little bit about what OPEN does and how it came to be? Yes. OPEN is a collection of scholars, faculty and students and staff who work at universities across Ohio. And our work is to examine the impact of reproductive health related laws and policies on the well-being of Ohioans and people in the region of the country. We focus a lot on contraception and abortion um, because these tend to be the most heavily regulated aspects of healthcare. And reproductive health policy evaluation programs like OPEN exist throughout the United States. We have um, colleagues looking at similar issues in Texas, in the U.S. Southeast, and in Wisconsin. Can you tell us just a little bit about how it came to be within your group of, of folks? We came to realize over the last decade in the state of Ohio, like many states in the United States, more and more regulation and legislation was being passed that had impacts on access and utilization of abortion care and contraception care. As you noted in your intro, there are real reproductive justice consequences to the regulation and legislation around healthcare, uh, reproductive healthcare. And th there's, there's great evidence around the safety of abortion. There's great evidence that, that abortion is very safe. Abortion is, is safe, absolutely, and it is safer than birth. 
by quite a lot. We also have a lot of evidence that access to contraception care and abortion care are, are good for people's lives across their lifespan. So in some respects, it's not the case that we need a lot of research to prove those things. We already have great evidence to prove those things. But as states are regulating uh, these kinds of care, we have come to know that it's important to provide excellent evidence, public health evidence, medical evidence, and scientific evidence that is based in our home states to motivate good policy and to support any challenges to laws where there's evidence that those laws and policies are, are harmful to the health and well-being of people in the state. I love this this use of the word evidence because I think that's such an important uh, word to use. And I think you sort of just spoke about this, but what do you think is important about integrating the work of different fields, right? Of policymakers, of medical professionals and academics. What do you think this cross-discipline dialogue looks like and works towards in relation to this evidence you spoke about? It's really valuable to put policymakers and medical professionals and academics into dialogue. Each of these groups is invested and each understands a different part of what's important. Each has different skills, each brings different data to the table, and each reach different audiences. So this kind of scholarship, studying the impact of policy on health, on the one hand, and describing how public health evidence can best motivate good policy, it's common beyond reproductive health. So automobile safety, smoking regulations, healthcare financing, these are all spaces in which uh, policymakers, medical professionals, and academics working together can provide some of the most important kinds of evidence and to the best audiences. I mentioned this already, but it bears saying again, we really know from the public health point of view that abortion access is necessary for good health across the life course. We know from the medical literature that abortion is safe and that it's safer than birth. And we know from our justice-oriented colleagues that bodily autonomy is, is really necessary for people to live their best lives. And so it's when we put these perspectives into communication, we can come to the clearest understanding and have the best opportunity to get things right. So our goal in open is to provide policymakers with the scientific evidence that will help them to envision equitable and non-stigmatized policies that will support the health needs of the people of Ohio. I love this whole sort of picture you're painting here of this, this sort of linking of, of, of different folks in different fields, which I think as you just beautifully elaborated, right, is, is a critical uh, need and in, during a critical moment as well in time and history. Can you tell us a little bit about the reproductive field right now in Ohio and what the current legislation looks like and where these kind of current fights are happening? Abortion is legal in Ohio. There are six clinics providing surgical and medication abortion and three clinics providing medication abortion only. It's important to say that right from the outset because in a steady drumbeat across the past decade, more and more legislation restricting abortion access, which is not in the best interest of the people of the state, has been proposed 
has been passed and has been enacted in Ohio and in our region. This creates a lot of uncertainty and confusion, and it's really incumbent on all of us to continue to remind people in Ohio that abortion remains legal and available. One of the critical things that happens in this context uh, where there are kind of ongoing legislative battles um, is something that we call care churn. Care churn can be defined in this way. At the level of the clinics themselves, there's an instability in abortion care services and a chronic uncertainty about the potential for closure or for service delivery changes. That instability and that chronic uncertainty is driven by the legislative environment in the state. And so care churn includes changes in the comprehensiveness of abortion services offered at a clinic, changes to the number of days clinics are open, changes in how long patients have to wait to get care, the cost to receive care, and then legislative restrictions also imposed changing gestational limits um, and generate uncertainty around whether abortion is legal. What I'm describing is the consequence of the number of laws that are proposed and passed and enacted and then legislated and enjoined. There's a kind of complex ongoing legislative context that creates this environment uh, resulting in care churn at the level of the clinic. And of course, all of that churn is experienced by patients who are trying to understand how, when, and where to obtain the abortion care that they need. I love that you brought back this term of consequences, because as you were speaking, I was just like, these are the consequences. We're seeing the very real consequences. And I just want to bring up, because I read one of your articles, and the statistic that I read was just so staggering to me. And I was like, oh my gosh, where you found that 26.2% of women in Ohio were unsure about the legality of abortion in the state while 9.8% believed it to be illegal. You've sort of already spoken about, obviously, consequences and, and this linking back to legislation, but what do you think the larger implications are of findings like this now and moving forward as well? Restrictive abortion policies, whether they're proposed or enacted, they generate uncertainty around whether abortion is legal. And as you pointed out, these data that you describe are from a survey of women throughout Ohio. And yes, more than a quarter of people who we interviewed were unsure if abortion was legal in the state. And nearly 10% thought that it was illegal. And when we look deeper into the characteristics of the people who hold those misunderstandings, we find that people are more likely to believe abortion is illegal amongst those who are young, black, unmarried, or of a lower socioeconomic status. So those populations that I just described are also people who experience barriers to abortion care in many other ways. And so this lack of correct information or belief that abortion might be against the law is laid upon other barriers that these patients and people already labor under. We find that these kinds of laws, proposed or enacted, reinforce stigma. So even if abortion restrictions never go into effect, and many of the proposed laws don't get passed, 
Many of the proposed laws get passed, but before they can be enacted, uh, a judge intervenes to enjoin them, meaning they can never be enforced as a law in the state. But even if they never go into effect, the resulting discourse and debate about the legislation leads some people to mistakenly believe that abortion has become illegal. And these misconceptions may cause delays for people seeking care or prompt some people who are able to do so to leave the state for care. For an example, in several of our interviews with people who lived in Ohio and went to Pennsylvania for an abortion, they did so because they thought that a six-week ban had been implemented in Ohio. So they drove out of state, in some instances driving right past an open clinic to get an abortion in another state. A kind of crucial part to this is a chilling effect that these kinds of laws and the resultant fear and inaccurate information have on the rest of the healthcare system. So medical professionals across the spectrum, far outside of abortion care, but who interact with people who can become pregnant, those healthcare providers themselves are also unsure about the laws regarding abortion. And they may feel silenced to talk about abortion, they may provide misinformation. Um, and the sum of it is that our healthcare system and folks within the healthcare system are, are in, unable to provide best information and support to their patients. One final point I wanted to make is that the frequency with which new abortion restrictions are proposed throughout the United States means that this kind of uncertainty and misconception about abortion illegal may be widespread in other states as well. Absolutely. I think you you touched on like a really phenomenal point of part of this point of legislation isn't even getting it actually enacted, it's the fear-mongering and the misinformation that just comes along with that as well. You also mentioned, and I think this is a, a perfect sort of transition, that who you were seeing that was more likely to report either uncertainty about access to abortion or believing it to be illegal were folks in marginalized categories. And so I was wondering if you could, in, in what other ways along reproductive care and access, are you seeing discrepancies in both access and knowledge along racial lines, uh, class lines, et cetera? Yeah, thank you for that. So you're, you're right that fear and misinformation they increase the impact of the stigma that already exists around abortion care. And uh, it creates burdens of delays. And the burdens of delays include things like increased cost, increased need for travel. It can lead to people having births that they did not want. And those increased burdens are borne most by people of color, people of low income, and rural people. As we just discussed, people who are young, black, unmarried, and of lower, fewer financial resources are more likely to believe abortion is illegal. Um, and so consequently, people who already experience disparities in accessing abortion may face an additional barrier. We have some other pieces of evidence to point to the ways in which uh, discrepancies in reproductive health care access and resources fallout for people along the lines of race and economic status. In a survey of people who are receiving abortion care in Ohio, West Virginia, and Kentucky, we ask about people's experiences in scheduling their abortions. Black patients are more likely to say that they were unable to get their abortion as soon as they wanted as compared to non-Black patients. 
I'll give just a couple more examples of effects that we've seen disparate impacts of reproductive health care access um, in the state. So we did a study looking at utilization of abortion from 2010 to 2018. So across a, a nine-year time period. And we found that early first trimester abortions, those are tend to be the easiest on the patient, most available and least expensive. Those early first trimester abortions decreased across this time span as a proportion of all abortions, while the proportion of abortions in later gestational categories increased over this time period. So over a decade, we are seeing that at the same time that there's increasing legislative burden, we're seeing that the proportion of people who can get who get the earliest care declines and people who still have an abortion have it later in their pregnancy and this trend runs counter to what we see uh, in in the rest of the united states which is that over time greater and greater proportions of people are having abortions earlier in their pregnancies and so we think that this illuminates something unique about Ohio, which is that this increasing legislative burden has having impacts on when people can have access to care. And a final look at this kind of set of disparities is looking at rural and urban. So Ohio has a large proportion uh, of people who live in counties that are rural. Um, and as we know, far outside the abortion care discussion, rural people have inequitable uh, access to health care, generally speaking. So we looked at access to abortion or utilization of abortion in Ohio as compared to other Midwest states. And we found um, a kind of similar trend across that 2010 to 2018 time period. However, when we looked county by county, we see that the use of abortion care dropped sharply for people living in most of the rural counties in the state. So it, what that means is that while abortion care was continued to be able to access in urban parts of Ohio, like it was in the mid rest of the Midwest, people in rural counties really had um, poorer access demonstrated through less utilization of abortion. When clinics in Ohio closed over this time period, abortion use among people living in nearby counties also dropped. And the big thread is that restrictive laws do sometimes lead to clinic closures and clinics being closed makes it harder for people to get care. So we see the multiplicative effect of legislation increasing burden on clinics and patients and as a result, those who are least able to overcome those burdens are those who are then unable to access abortion care when they need it. Absolutely. And I think you, you explained this multi-layer effect also comes in when we're thinking about already restricted access, right? When we're looking at racism in the medical field or you know, economic relationships in the medical field, that's just another added, as you said, burden, which I think is heartbreaking, but, but very uh, important to note. Along these lines of disparity, I know you and your team recently did some research around access to reproductive care during the COVID-19 pandemic. So can you tell us a little bit about what you found? And I'm sure some of it has to do with discrepancies and disparities as well. You know, we saw across the country that COVID-19 changed the way that lots of different healthcare services were delivered, and it changed the way that abortion care was delivered. Abortion clinics 
just like healthcare providers in other uh, areas of health across the state and across the country, pivoted to using medications instead of procedures whenever possible so that people would be spending less time in clinics and pivoted to doing time sensitive care and to spacing patients out in order to do physical distancing in clinics and transition to using telehealth instead of in-person care. So of course these were phenomena that played out very obviously in all healthcare settings across the world. One thing that was uh, frustrating and challenging was that the Ohio executive branch tried to use this moment of crisis to stop abortion care. And because, of course, time-sensitive care was still being provided um, across the country in all fields, and abortion is not exceptional. Abortion is um, time-sensitive care, like like other types of care. It needed to, it. It was not possible to stop and delay it for months or weeks. So the clinics in Ohio sued um, and were able to remain open because of the pandemic's impact. We did see some real changes in the ways that abortion care was used. So the total number of procedural abortions amongst facilities in Ohio, West Virginia, and Kentucky uh, dropped by about half if you compare March 2020 to April 2020. So the, the, the number of procedural abortions declined dramatically. Medication abortion simultaneously jumped. And so in Ohio, we saw that the total number of abortions remained relatively constant across the time period that we examined. And these kinds of changes were experienced similarly across the country. Um, and two things that came into bright focus were the advantages of telehealth and um, the burden of something called the REMS, Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy. Looking at telehealth, the advantages of telehealth really were so obvious during the pandemic. And so we found in Ohio some frustrating evidence and concern that it would hurt Ohio's Ohioans' well-being, that Ohio legislators were passing laws to restrict telehealth for abortion, even as its utility was being demonstrated so clearly. These laws obviously uh, do not improve health and well-being. And we see other legislation in Ohio that runs counter to the state's interests the, and the residents' interests. So the state has interests uh, to support rural people who are hit harder by uh, an opioid epidemic that we have in Ohio. Um, the state has an interest to support black and brown communities and in particular improving maternal and infant health for black people in the state. And so as Ohio simultaneously raises barriers to ordinary and necessary health care in abortion care, it puts burdens on those who are most burdened by other structural disadvantage and who the state has sort of a declared um, interest in supporting. And, and we saw the same kinds of things play out during the pandemic. Ohio did really quite an amazing job in early response to the pandemic. And so to see that interwoven with um, increasing restrictions around abortion care, it was, of course, very disappointing and also very concerning because it, the health and ethical challenges of increasing burdens on people who are, through evidence-based, experiencing the most burdens is, is not what we want our state and our healthcare providers to be doing. Absolutely. You brought up both this sort of legislative component during the pandemic, um, as well as 
this already sort of precarious nature of clinics, even pre-pandemic, right? Do you see any long-lasting impacts due to the pandemic on access to, or lack thereof, to equitable and adequate reproductive care? Or do you think it's just sort of going to continue in the way that it has been for some time in just picking away at, or attempting to pick away at this sort of care and equity? So the pandemic really meant that this that a lack of healthcare access for poor people, for rural people, for people who experience racism was it was really shown in a stark highlight. We were given yet another extremely clear example of the ways in which structural disadvantage, including racism, are consequential on people's bodies and on their on their ability to remain alive. At the moment of the pandemic, we could see in Ohio that people were impacted by the dual burden of challenges created by the pandemic on all healthcare, so backlog of appointments, delays in care, and that these were compounded by Ohio's existing abortion restrictions, such that people had decreased opportunities for timely care, uh, which can result in higher procedure costs more travel to a clinic with capacity, and emotional and physical burdens. So I think that all of those things do have long-lasting impacts on the people who experienced them. And maybe most important is that the pandemic let us see some of those impacts of inequitable and inadequate reproductive care. Um, It exposed, and here's an example. I mentioned the REMS, Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy. It's, the REMS is a US Food and Drug Administration, a US FDA program that requires special treatment of certain medications. And in particular, a particular medication, the abortion drug mefeprestone, It was required now for many years to be ordered, prescribed, and dispensed in a clinic setting by a certified provider. So REMS is um, in place to take special care with um, certain medications that uh, have higher risk to patients. So there has been a longstanding set of scholarship trying to have the REMS removed because mifepristone is a very safe drug, doesn't require this um, level of scrutiny and oversight that the REMS requires. And so during uh, the pandemic, the in-person dispensing requirement was temporarily removed by the FDA. And there's um, a movement to have the REMS um, in-person dispensing requirement permanently um, removed. However, what we could see in Ohio was that there was not a significant increase in medication abortion use between July and December of 2020, when the REMS in-person dispensing requirement was temporarily removed, because we have state laws that restrict the distribution of medication abortion. So states with that uh, state law are unable to take advantage of the temporary lifting of the REMS in-person dispensing requirement. So while on a national level, we will see some benefits to understandings that we gained from the crisis of the pandemic, it will have to be on a state-by-state level that things like the removal of the REMS to have an actual advantage to the people living in the state. I think we can kind of follow that thread, right, of of state and federal uh, complex relationship 
and unfortunately, we kind of have to talk about this because it's so recent, the passing of the Texas abortion bill, right? Um, which is different than other potential legislation, right? It allows civil suits to be brought against a variety of players uh, in and around the abortion process. Where do you see this line of legislation going, again, both at a uh, sort of state level, but also at a national level and, and in Ohio, and especially with our current Supreme Court, do we see this sort of fight potentially happening between the national and the federal level? You know, we're of course worried, um, people across the country are worried that their own state legislatures will copy the Texas law, which has devastated access to abortion care in Texas over the last many weeks. So we really feel strongly that sharing our evidence is even more critical at this time when Ohio legislators could be considering a copy of the Texas law and they are currently debating a trigger ban. So a trigger ban is uh, a law that says once some other thing happens, this law is triggered into effect. And so an abortion trigger ban, um, were it to be passed in Ohio, would say that if the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade, then abortion will be automatically triggered to be illegal in the state of Ohio. So we've begun looking at what would happen. If Ohio passes this trigger ban, and if SCOTUS overturns Roe, we have looked at what would happen to people in the state. We've calculated that currently, if you look at driving distance and then you weight it by the number of people who, would, who have that driving distance, right? So, so we look at the population weighted driving distance and look at the average population weighted driving distance in Ohio, currently it's about 26 miles one way for the average person in Ohio to drive to an abortion clinic. That would increase if we have the trigger ban and SCOTUS overturns Roe to 180 miles one way average driving distance for a person in Ohio. That's six times. So 26 Currently, it would be 180 miles on average. And some people would have a driving distance one way of up to 300 miles to get to their nearest abortion clinic that would be open if uh, SCOTUS were to overturn Roe. And that, I mean, those figures are also around if other states don't do the same thing, right? Like uh, there could also be potentially this domino effect of many states potentially doing a similar thing, I can imagine. Yes, you're right. There are currently 12, 12 states that have a trigger ban already um, of the type that Ohio is considering right now. Um, and those driving distances are calculated in consideration of whether the states that surround Ohio are places where abortion care would likely to be protected in a post-Roe environment versus likely to be not protected in a post-Roe environment. So um, some of our neighboring states have trigger bans, others have other legislatures and laws that are hostile to abortion care. And so, and then other states have protections built in. So um, those computations are based on exactly as you say, not only what's gonna happen, what could happen in Ohio, but what could happen in the neighboring states um, surrounding Ohio. 
this research, I think, is a prime example of my last question to you, but I feel like I should, I can propose it regardless. How do you envision the role of, of open and other networks like it on this new battleground? I mean, you just said, right, like this evidence is so important, which I 100% agree with. What are you envisioning for open moving forward? The evidence, high quality evidence about abortion care and contraceptive access from high quality research. Uh, endeavors are needed now and will continue to be needed to provide a counterweight to stigma and to misinformation. They will be needed to provide evidence to policymakers who are interested in science and using evidence to um, create laws that will support the health and well-being of people um, who they serve and to counter policies and laws that hurt people um, in their, who are their constituents. So abortion is safe. It's much safer than birth. Of course, we want birth also to be safe uh, and to be safer, um, especially for people who currently experience um, higher rates of morbidity and mortality from birth, which includes Black people in the United States. Even in this context, uh, abortion care remains one of the safest procedures and one that many, many people, many, many people in the United States use. And so making sure that abortion is available means that people have access to a safe health care outcome um, and often a desired health care outcome. People who are denied a wanted abortion have a whole range of poor health, economic, and family outcomes as compared to people who obtain a wanted abortion. And I want to take just a minute to detail some of the evidence that we have. Women who are denied a wanted abortion who have to carry an unwanted pregnancy to term have four times greater odds of living below the federal poverty line years later. People who are denied a wanted abortion are more likely to experience serious complication from the end of pregnancy, including eclampsia and death. They're more likely to stay tethered to abusive partners. They're more likely to suffer anxiety and loss of self-esteem in the short term after being denied an abortion. They're less likely to have aspirational life plans for the coming year. They're more likely to experience poor physical health for years after the pregnancy, including chronic pain and gestational hypertension. So these data are um, come from a study called the Turnaway Study, led by scholars um, at answer at University of California, San Francisco. And they're really important evidence because we knew from the medical point of view that abortion care was safe. And now we know from the public health world that there are important consequences to people who obtain a wanted abortion and important consequences for people who are unable to obtain a wanted abortion. And so while we don't necessarily need more research to prove these things, these evidence are very well established, we at OPEN and um, other scholars across the country will continue to produce evidence because state legislatures continue to make laws that run counter to public health and medicine and justice. So we want to provide evidence to say who in our state is experiencing these kinds of consequences. And um, over time, how have these become more or less of a problem as as a result of laws that are passed? So that with correct information and science and evidence, 
people can understand why access to abortion is necessary for the people in Ohio and beyond to live their fullest lives. Dr. Norris, you have given us so much information, so much to think about, and a lot to think about in terms of, of evidence and consequences, which I think are, are two very important words I'm going to hold on to. So thank you so much for joining us uh, again, and thank you for, for all of your knowledge. I enjoyed talking with you very much, and I'm grateful to you using your platform to share this kind of um, understanding about abortion care, because as you noted, we have some important cases coming before the Supreme Court that um, will be making decisions about whether people in the United States can still access abortion care. And so I'm particularly grateful that you are elevating evidence and talking about the consequence of of these important cases and laws and um, opportunities for people to utilize abortion care that they need. Thanks so much. You can learn more about OPEN and their work in Ohio by visiting open.osu.edu, where they have a multitude of briefs, fact sheets, and infographics to understand the current reproductive access landscape. You can also check them out on Twitter at OpenReproHealth. Want to learn more about what you heard? Head over to sexgenlab.org to find all the blogs, infographics, and videos on gender and sexuality research. Maybe you have an idea or topic you want us to discuss. You can email us at sexcavationpodcast at gmail.com. This has been Sexcavation with Bridget Woods. Hope you've enjoyed the dig.